Chapter 4, Real Estate Agency. Agency. The law of agency is the law of the rights and duties of the principal and the agent. It's really a law of relationships. The law of agency says, when I become your agent, that is a serious relationship that I am embarking on with you and you with me. I am your agent, you are my principal. So this is an important relationship and it's important for business and commerce, it's important for uh, contracts, it's important uh, between representing people and, and uh, if someone were to violate the law of agency, let's say an agent violated it, uh, there could be compensatory damages, loss of commission, uh, personal damages uh, to the agent because of the breach of agency. So this is serious stuff. This chapter uh, makes a relatively simple concept complicated. So I'm going to keep try to keep it simple for you. We're going to talk about the law of agency, which is the which is the the law that will apply to you once you become someone's agent. Big powerful word agent. Your book talks about the common law of agency, which is uh, the agency relationship that has been historically understood and developed for years and years of business commerce. And it's based on old English law. Well, in Illinois, we sort of did away with what we call the common law of agency, and we passed our own agency law. So that's really what's important. This is really what we're going to study. And so any reference to the common law of agency, just know that there, w there is this thing, and that for states that have not usurped the common law of agency by creating their own statutory law, their own written law, and I'll show you where this law is. We're going to go through it line by line. For those states that don't have a, a statutory law, then the common law of agency would apply in uh, relationships and between parties uh, in those states. Um, most states have passed some sort of statutory law affecting their agency because it's just a lot clearer and it covers a lot more circumstances than the old common law did. So here in Illinois, we have a thing called the statutory law of agency, uh, which we're going to actually give it another name later uh, that we'll, we'll call it. But right now we have a statute in Illinois. Uh, it was part of uh, the actual statute is uh, the uh, real estate uh, uh, license law of uh, 2000. And uh, in that license law, it specifically lays out line by line what the, our agency law is and how people perform and under that law, what they can do and what they can't do as an agent. Uh, a couple definitions for us uh, with the with a, and under the agency things we're going to study here, agency concepts. First of all, an agent and a client. We know what that is. An agent is the person who's authorized to represent someone, and the client is the person you're representing. Uh, sometimes we use the term principal for the client. So a principal is your client, the person you are representing. And what kind of relationship do you have with your principal client? You have a fiduciary relationship. A fiduciary relationship is one that's close and confidential. In fact, it's based on trust. In fact, once you become someone's fiduciary, once you represent them, they become 
uh, your alter ego. Uh, as you would not hurt yourself, you would not hurt the person you're representing. So that's what's important. That fiduciary, that word fiduciary, and that word fiduciary relationship, that phrase fiduciary relationship, is a very, very powerful one. So once you become some, someone's agent, once you're representing them as they're, they're, they're your client, they're your principal, once you enter into that kind of relationship, you owe them a fiduciary duties. A couple of other definitions, consumer, customer, client. What's the difference? A consumer. Think of a consumer as somebody who's standing outside your real estate office looking through the window wondering, I wonder if I should go in and talk to them about listing my property. I wonder if I should go in and see if they, they'll help me find property. They're a consumer. When they walk in the door, you're either going to make them a client or a customer. What's the difference? Of course, if you make them your client, uh, that means you're going to represent them and you owe them a fiduciary duty. If you make them a customer, you're telling them, I'm not going to represent you and give, your, give you client level services. I'm not going to represent you with your best interest as uh, my uh, principal or an I, your agent, but I will deal with you and I will help you and service you, but I'm going to service you as a customer in which case you still owe some duties to your customers, but not the same duties that you would owe someone who is your client. Look at it this way. A consumer is someone you owe no duties to. They're outside looking in. There's no relationship. A customer is someone you owe ministerial acts to, customer-level duties. And a client is someone you owe all of those fiduciary duties that we'll be talking about. Page 63 talks about the fiduciary duties that you owe, to, and page 73 talks about ministerial acts, things that you can do with customers and not have it rise to client-level uh, duties. So when that consumer walks in your office, you're either going to have them sign an agency agreement or sign a non-agency agreement. If they sign an agency agreement, they're your client, you represent them. If they sign a non-agency agreement, they're your customer. Okay, let's just kind of think this whole thing through a little bit. And again, we're, we're, we're taking essentially some pretty simple concepts in, in, in retrospect, and we're making them a little more complicated than we should, but we'll try not to do that. But this is important stuff that we need to know. So, um, you know, you're an agent and you have a client. Who might your client be? Well, maybe you represent a seller. Well, if you're representing a seller, who are you trying to, what are you trying to help the seller do? You're help, trying to help the seller find a buyer. So if, they, if there's a buyer involved in the transaction, maybe you represent the client, and then you're also working with a buyer as a customer. Maybe you represent a buyer, but you represent, you, but you're, you're finding a seller for him. Maybe the buyer is a, you know, is a commercial, um, is it's commercial transaction. You have a large industrial client that wants to find a, a plant somewhere in the northeast, so they hire you to go out and find a seller for that. So the uh, the uh, buyer uh, company hires an agent to find a seller, or perhaps it's a landlord that find, hires the agent to find a tenant, or perhaps it's a tenant that fire, hires the agent and they find an, an owner to lease property, a tenant rep, if you will. Again, kind of a commercial kind of thing. 
So these agents represent clients and the, the other party is typically a customer then. Um, and, and at the end of the, the day, when you finally find the customer for the client, you're usually rewarded by a, a, a money the client pays you for your services. Now, just on this customer deal, sometimes those customers are represented by other agents. Therefore, you don't have a relationship with those other individuals. They're being represented by another agent, and that's their client. So this is kind of the way the real estate transaction should be. Uh, clients are being represented by both uh, by agents, uh, by both both parties being represented. Uh, both parties in a transaction have an agent that is representing their best interests. That's probably the ideal way that transactions should be uh, should uh, these real estate transactions should be uh, done in the real estate business. Each uh, party of the transaction has their own agent. So our duties to our clients when we have this fiduciary relationship include the duties of care, obedience, loyalty, disclosure, accounting, confidentiality. A disclosure and confidentiality are, are, are very critical. Obviously, they're all important, but maybe a little special attention to disclosure confidentiality. Disclosure means when you represent someone, you must make sure that you've disclosed to them every possible thing that would uh, protect them. Uh, you must keep them informed of facts and information that affect the transaction, uh, any relevant material facts that you know, or maybe even that you should have known. Uh, you must be you must disclose all of these to these people that you represent, called your clients. Um, you could be held liable. Uh, for mistakes later if these were things you should have known about and were never disclosed to your client. So uh, a, a very important duty of disclosure. Confidentiality means anything your client tells you you cannot share with anyone technically ever. There's a couple of little exceptions we'll talk about later, but when someone tells you something in confidence, not only do you become their agent, if you will, at that, mo at that moment, but you cannot share that confidential information with others. If you are representing someone and as a customer, I shouldn't say represent, as you're, if you're working with someone as a customer, uh, notice the, that is you work with a customer. Uh, you still owe them duties. They're not fiduciary duties, but they're duties, they're customer level duties. You owe them a fair and honest transaction. Uh, you know them. Uh, you owe them a disclosure uh, that you're not going to represent them. A disclosure of non-agency. So, if you're going to represent, if you're going to work with someone as a customer, you must make sure that they know that they're not your client; that they are your customer. You owe them a duty of accounting. You owe them the duties that are outlined within the ministerial acts duties on page 73, 53. These are things you can do and work with customers and not have your relationship considered a client level, but a customer level of relationship. If you give permissions, uh, if you give uh, uh, any kind of uh, disclosure or opinion, uh, if it's uh, an opinion, make sure it's an opinion and uh, you're in good shape. If you say any kind of fact, make sure that your fact is correct or you can be held for fraudulent uh, uh, you know, practices in your real, in real estate business. So be careful that you separate your opinion 
from facts. If you state a fact, make sure it's a fact and you've got the documents to, to back it up. Um, the, uh, we're allowed as real estate brokers and salespeople uh, to engage in what's called puffery. Uh, puffery is legal. It's sort of exaggeration. It's sort of a salesmanship kinds of talk. So we can say things like, uh, Mr. Uh, seller, uh, you've got the nicest house in the neighborhood. This should be a, a, you know, we should get, we should sell this right away. Uh, that's different than if you said something about Mr. Seller, this is the best house in the the uh, the community. It will sell for far more than anybody else has, and it will sell in 30 days. So be careful when you say things of uh, of, of uh, fact uh, versus this business of puffery. So puffery is sort of sales talk, and we're allowed a little of this sales talk, a little of this sales exaggeration, uh, and not have it arise to where we're uh, conducting in fraudulent misstatements. Puffing, puffery is okay. The Residential Property Disclosure Act, found on page 38, uh, is a statement that the sellers make regarding the uh, any hidden defects in the property that buyers are going to have to know about. So sellers have to disclose any mechanical, structural, or environmental defects that they're aware of. And they do that in that form called the Residential Pro Real Property and Disclosure Form, which is part of the Act. Uh, it applies to all residential properties. That's one to four unit properties. Sellers must complete this form. The form uh, must be given to any prospective buyer uh, before they make an offer. If it's given to them after the offer, they may have the right to rescind or cancel the offer. The form itself must also include the act, so it's more than just filling in the blanks that you see on page 38, but it's also including the actual act. So that must be attached to the form as well. Again, this, these are seller's statements. You as a real estate broker uh, do not help the sellers fill this out. If they want their attorneys to do it with them, that's fine, but don't you give them any advice or sit with them while they fill this form out. They do that on their own without your assistance. Again, residential properties. A latent defect is any hidden defect. Obviously, hidden defects must be disclosed. Patent defects are defects that are easily seen. Technically, you don't have to disclose patent defects because people can see them. So if, you're, if buyers are going through a property and there's water stains on the ceiling that are pretty obvious, or you can see water dripping from the ceiling, you technically don't have to point that out because it's a patent or easily seen defect. We want to know latent defect. Stigmatized properties. Stigmatized properties are properties that aren't, quote, defective properties. They just have a stigma which means that a property that was the site of a suicide or a murder or crime, or if there was a serious illness at the property, or there were ghosts or poltergeists or paranormal activities, uh, uh, our act says that we don't have to disclose that to prospective purchasers. Uh, our, our Real Estate License Act says that we are protected from disclosing these types of, quote, stigmatisms. Why? Because they don't affect the habitability of property. Now, whether you do want to disclose them, if you feel like you should, 
you know, you're, and there you're representing the buyers as your client, uh, you know, you can certainly do that, but you're not compelled to dis disclose these, stigmati these stigmatisms on properties. And by the way, if the serious illness uh, that you want to disclose is HIV, you can't do that. So the only serious illness that you can't disclose is HIV. The others you don't have to disclose if there was a serious illness if you don't want to. But if it's an HIV, uh, the sellers, let's say, had HIV or AIDS, uh, that you can't uh, disclose. That's kind of a fair housing protected class, as we'll see later. So we'll want to know that stigmatized properties are stigmatized stigmatisms that really don't affect habitability and that we as real estate brokers and salespeople do not have to disclose them to, to prospective buyers or to tenants. We spent uh, much of this chapter uh, talking about our relationship as agents to our clients and the fiduciary relationship and duty that we owe our clients. The question might also be, well, what if we're not working with somebody in a client-agent relationship? Uh, perhaps uh, we'll take a buyer uh, that comes in our offices and we tell them about the uh, customer-level duties we can owe and owe them as well as client-level duties that we, can, uh, we would owe them, uh, and they decide that they don't want active representation from us. They want us just to work with them and not to represent them. That makes them a customer. And we really should have them sign a document that is uh, a document is called uh, non-agency, which says in writing uh, that that individual, typically buyers, uh, are not going to be uh, are not uh, going to allow you to uh, represent them as their uh, agent, and therefore you don't have a client uh, agent relationship. You have a customer licensee relationship. And so, just to put a little finer point on that, uh, as a customer, you're not representing them. Uh, you're a bit, you're able to work with them, but you're not working for them. So you still owe customers duties, and the duties are a fair and honest transaction. Uh, we have to account for all the monies our customers give us and make sure it gets returned to them and it's taken care of. Uh, we have to still disclose to the material facts that are involved in uh, any decision they may be making vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the uh, condition of the property or vis-a-vis -vis terms and conditions that uh, would affect their uh, decision-making ability uh, that as it relates to the property. So these all be uh, material facts that we want to make sure they, they're aware of. Uh, we can, with customers, do what are called ministerial acts. These are customer-level acts found on page 59. Customer-level acts are different than client-level acts in that these are uh, types of uh, clerical uh, and uh, informative uh, acts uh, that don't arise to the level of client-level representation on behalf of a client, but these are things that we can do as ministerial acts that we can do working with a customer. Uh, now whether or not this is really followed in real practice every day in the industry, well that's a whole other thing, but the point we want to make here is there's a difference between uh, acting with someone who's a customer and giving them ministerial acts and duties and uh, individuals that we rep have active uh, fiduciary relationship with that we have a client relationship with. Uh, so we have to keep that in mind. So therefore, if you're working with a customer buyer, don't call them your client. 
because that may imply an agency relationship when in fact you may or they may not want one. Call them, you know, your buyers, call them their Mr. and Mrs. Smith, call them uh, the, you know, the customers you're dealing with, but just stay away from the word client if you're working with a customer. So again, remember that as a licensee, when you work with a customer, uh, you, you can work with them, giving them ministerial acts and giving them these duties we just talked about, these, these services we just talked about. But when you're working for a client, uh, that would be different. So you work with a customer and you work for your client. How are agencies created? Well, usually by written agreement. So with sellers, we would sign a listing contract. With a buyer, we'd sign a buyer brokerage agreement. With the property managers, we would sign a property management agreement. With, a, with someone who is looking for property to rent, we'd sign, we'd, we'd sign a leasing rep agreement. So we put them in writing. They become our clients. We start to work for them, and when we accomplish our mission, we get paid. How are they terminated? These are terminated by the death of the broker, and it should be the death of the broker and the client. It's not the salesperson's death that affects these contracts. These contracts are between the parties are, in this case, a broker and a seller, broker buyer, broker property manager, broker lease uh, tenant. If the property is materially destroyed, that contract relating to that property is also terminated. Every one of these contracts has to have an expiration time, time period in it. These contracts can't run forever. They can't automatically renew. So when the time period is up, our agency contract is up because it's terminated by expiration of the time period. Another way that an agency can be terminated is by the parties mutually agreeing to terminate the agreement. There are other ways too. These are the more important ones. These are the different kinds of agents we have. Universal agents, special agents, general agents. What we want to know, the only two things we want to know is that uh, a property manager would be considered a general agent a real estate sales agent is considered a special agent. Special agents, we do one activity. When that activity is done, our agency ends. With a general agent, we're an agent that does one task, but we may have many duties relating to the same task. A property manager is uh, leasing property. Uh, they're also uh, maintaining the property. Uh, they're also maybe doing reports on the property to the owner. Uh, they also may be doing uh, some accounting for them as far as their monthly financials on the property. So a property manager may be doing more than one duty uh, assigned to that specific task. Property managers are general agents, real estate sales agents, specific, special, special agents or specific agents, either one, special or specific agent. The Illinois Statutory Law of Agency. In Illinois, then, we have our statutory law and is sometimes called the designated agency law. Our law of agency says every time we sign an employment agreement with a seller or if the buyer hires us or a landlord hires us or a tenant hires us, in that contract we will designate a person to represent that, that client. So that's why we're called designated agents because every one of our contracts we designate someone specifically to represent that
We know what a consumer is. We know that if we're not representing someone as the client, if we are representing them as a consumer, we can do these things called ministerial acts. There are customer duties, not client duties. Ministerial acts are customer duties. So a designated agent is where the sponsoring broker of a real estate company, when one of those contracts is signed, listing agreement, buyer brokerage agreement, etc., the sponsoring broker designates somebody in his office to represent that individual as their client. So we have a seller engages ABC Realty under a listing contract. In that listing contract we designate Sally Broker to represent the seller. Same company. We sign a buyer brokerage agreement. We're going to represent a buyer under a buyer brokerage agreement. Perhaps Diane Broker is going to be the designated agent to represent that buyer. So in every office we have a sales agent that is going to be the designated agent to represent that client. So we have the listing contract. We have Sally Broker representing them. And we have a buyer brokerage agreement that Sally is also going to represent. So Sally Broker in this case is not only representing sellers, but she's also representing buyers. That's not a big deal. The only time Sally has to worry about representing both sellers and buyers as her, their designated agent, the only time she has to worry about that is when. That's right. When her buyer client wants to buy her seller client's property, then Sally becomes a dual agent and that may put her in a difficult situation. So that's how we get dual agency, where Sally, salesperson, broker, sales agent, has got these listings that she's the designated agent for the seller, and she also has buyer brokerage agreements where she's also representing buyers. When they engage in the same transaction for one of her properties, then she is a dual agent. She can be a dual agent, but both buyer and seller must agree in that transaction that she can represent both of them. And not only do they have to uh, agree, they have to agree in writing and they have to give their consent. So it's not enough for them to just know that you're doing, doing that. It's not enough for them to just give permission. They have to give you written permission after you give them disclosure, written disclosure that you're going to be a dual agent in that transaction. So that's what Sally has to do in that deal where her buyer clients are buying her seller clients' properties. Sally could never be a dual agent, let's say, if she were going to buy for her own account one of her, uh, one of her listed properties. She couldn't represent a seller and also represent herself. So she could never be a dual agent on deals that she personally is involved in. So we want to know about the Illinois Real Property Disclosure Form, the lead-based paint disclosure. Important about lead-based paint simply is that um, if you're dealing with properties that were built prior to 1978, be aware that they may have lead-based paint and you must disclose that to potential buyers and as well as potential tenants that the property that they're going to buy perhaps might have been exposed to lead-based paint. So we have to give them a lead-based paint form and we have to give them a pamphlet and say, be aware that this, may, this property may have the presence of lead-based paint on it because it was built prior to 1978. Uh, Raydown disclosure, 
if we're in an area where there's radon or there have been properties that have radon, we have to disclose to potential purchasers that uh, you know it might be a good idea for them to get radon inspection. This isn't mandatory for sellers to do, but if a buyer wants it, then we have to do radon. We will have to do a radon. A seller will have to do a radon test. Latent defects are those hidden defects. So, continuing talking about disclosures, um, we want to make sure that we disclose agency relationships, as we've made to the point through this whole chapter here. If you're not going to be somebody's agent, you have to make sure that they know that, and you should do that in writing. It's called a statement of non-agency. And of course, if you are going to represent somebody, it's going to be in one of those contracts we talked about, listing contract, buyer brokerage agreement, etc. cetera. Uh, also with disclosures, uh, you might want to also disclose when you are dealing with people, uh, agency relationships that are available to them, and primarily the agency relationship is either a client or you know a customer. So I, I don't know that you know, there's any other disclosures that you really have to make here with that. And al also, you want to make sure that the names of the designated agents are on those contracts, so that each client knows who is representing them in that in that company. Uh, the amount and the manner of your compensation must be disclosed to your clients on your listing contract. You're going to certainly put how you're paid. Uh, also, you're going to indicate whether you're going to share that compensation with other brokers. So you might want to put a statement in your, uh, your employment contracts with your, the seller or the buyer that maybe there's going to be a co-op fee that you share with other brokers.